You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they, they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if his It is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. We are thankful for your word to us, your action in history, the way that you have revealed yourself to your people in time and revealed yourself to us today. Uh, God, as... Clint has already prayed. We pray that you would do a great work in and amongst us here, your people, through our work, our um, study, our digestion of your word to us in the book of Exodus. We pray that it might transform us more and more into people who love like Jesus, who act and react like Jesus more and more because of what he has done for us on our behalf. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you, and we need you this hour, so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A little toasty in here this evening. It's all right. Uh, power through. Uh, I've been reassured that it'll be a little cooler next week, uh, so don't, don't freak out. It's not going to be like this all summer. Uh, well, if I haven't met you, I'm glad to see you here this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you are here with us this evening. Every Sunday, as we've said a couple times 
uh, in our time together, every Sunday is uniquely special. There is no other Sunday in history, before or after, where this unique gathering of people will be in this room singing these songs, praying these prayers, and thinking through this text of Scripture. So it is an important reality for us to be here together each and every week, and we're glad that you're here tonight. But I'm especially glad to be with, here to, with you here tonight because this is the first week as we open the book of Exodus together. We are convictionally persuaded here at Christ Church that the best way for us to think about God's Word together as a church is to think about it through books of the Bible, to preach through them and then to talk about them, discuss them, and have different books within its context uh, applied together within the life of the church. The best way for us to know and understand God, the best way for us to then understand our own lives before Him, is by walking chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Understanding context, forcing ourselves to even deal with certain issues or topics that we would frankly rather not deal with or think through but that God in his wisdom has given to us in his word. I've been so excited for maybe about a year now to get to this Sunday in preparation for this book. In the year or so leading up today, I've, been become, I've become just entirely persuaded that we really won't understand the rest of the Bible unless we understand this book. If we are not mindful of, if we are not listening for the Exodus story, In the rest of the Bible, both before Exodus and after Exodus, the Bible will just be less, still understandable, still great and useful and meaningful for us, but perhaps a little less rich, perhaps a little less full. So we'll have many months to together think through and understand what I mean by that, but for tonight, I just want to briefly introduce what I mean. I'm going to introduce Exodus tonight in two halves, or really three parts. Uh, First, just the echoes of Exodus, which will be kind of an intro to this book. What is Exodus? Where does it fit within the rest of the Bible? How do we see its echoes, its reverberations throughout the rest of the Bible? And then related, but second, understanding Exodus. And then third, we'll get to the actual text of chapter one that Emily read for us, the need for an Exodus. Okay, so first of all, the echoes of Exodus. What is it? Well, first of all, it's book two of the Pentateuch. Like we said two years ago in introducing the book of Genesis, penta is Greek for five, and tuk is Greek for tuk. So it's the five tukes, which is really helpful for us to go through. But really, tuk, we don't use that word. I don't know of any other word that we, maybe Byron could tell us another word that we have that we use for that. But tuk means tool or scroll. So the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament or of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the five scrolls. These are to be read together and to be understood together. So we don't really just take one without understanding what's come before or after. Jewish tradition has that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, these books, these five books, these five scrolls, are often and ongoingly referred to with Moses as the author. Just last week, Clint showed us that in Luke 24, Jesus himself refers to Moses and the rest of the prophets. What Jesus is talking about there is this, the Pentateuch. There are definitely places that it's clear that Moses didn't write in some of the areas of the Pentateuch, like uh, after his death, 
which comes at the, at the end of the Pentateuch. We don't have to think that Moses like delivered that account from beyond the grave or something like that. It's clear that some other later writers have added to this book of the five. But generally, we can say this is a work of Moses that is given to us by God through him. So when did all this happen? A lot of work has been spent and examined by Christian and Jewish historians and archaeologists to determine uh, the date or the history around, surrounding these events of Exodus. Some skeptical critics of the Bible maintain that this event couldn't have happened the way that the Bible says it did, or that it didn't happen, happen at all. Perhaps there was never any uh, Hebrew slaves in Egypt. But I think there's really good evidence that it did. One of my favorite classes my freshman year at the University of Texas uh, was Intro to Egyptology. Uh, the professor was a renowned Egyptologist who also happened to be an evangelical Christian uh, and believed the events of the Bible to be true. And he hosted optional outside seminars to examine the evidence for Joseph being in Egypt, to examine the evidence of a great Hebrew nation of slaves living in Egypt. But here's the thing. While all of that is super interesting, and I do find it super interesting, I love it. I can share with you more about some of the history and context from some commentaries or blogs. Uh, but I think all that kind of misses the point. I think it's good to study and to examine, but not to be the point of understanding Exodus. Like, th- this, is like a, uh, this is a way for us to validate the truthfulness of the Bible or something. Because while I do believe 100% that the accounts of the book of Exodus are uh, a retelling of a historical event, Moses did not set out to merely and simply give us a journalistic retelling of some facts of history. Just like Genesis, Exodus is a theological history. It is the story of God's rule over the nations. It is the story of God's rule over the universe. It's a story of his keeping covenant promises to a particular people and of his progressive and unfolding revelation of himself to these people. It's a story of his powerful and mighty salvation of these people that the whole earth might know God, might love him, might worship him. So it's not just a newspaper article about what happened in 3000 BC or something in Egypt. As we'll see, Moses couldn't really care less about the history of Egypt like we curiously want him to. The name of Pharaoh isn't even given because in this story, he's relatively insignificant. This is not a story about some great Egyptian Pharaoh. It is the story of God. For we Christians on this side of the cross living in 2019, the event of the past that we often look back towards the event that, we, that grounds us in reality, the way that we know that God will keep his promises to us today in the present is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Just three weeks ago, from this very pulpit, I said, do you want to know how you know if God loves you? Don't look to your circumstances surrounding you, but look to the cross. Remember, we've, these are the kinds of things that we often think through together. Well, similarly, for the nation of Israel, That kind of past event that grounds them in present reality is this, the Exodus. The Exodus is the seminal event in the history of Israel, uh, much like the cross is for us. So throughout the Psalms in David's day and beyond, in Israel's later exile and slavery in Babylon, Israel and the prophets and others are calling Israel to remember 
what God has done in the Exodus. They might say something like, do you want to know how we know that God will act in the present? Don't look to your circumstances. Look to the Exodus. Look what he did in Egypt. Look what he did at the Red Sea. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He cares. But not just explicitly when talking about these specific, specific events, like so many of the prophets and psalmists do, we also see more subtle references, more subtle allusions to the Exodus throughout the Old Testament. And it goes in both directions, both toward, both ongoingly in future, in, in, in the future in Israel's history, but also backwards in time throughout the book of Genesis. Even, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, the Exodus carries a lot of the same language and themes of Genesis 1, all the way back in time to creation. It's like Exodus is like this really massive boulder that gets like dropped from a helicopter or something into a sea. And there is beginning small ripples that move in all directions, both in forward in the future and back in history. And then as the, the ripples grow into waves and then gaining in speed and in energy, then in the future, these waves crash on the shores of redemption in the person and in the work of Christ. This is an amazing, amazing book. So it's not just the future though, even in Genesis. Think about this. You have God's covenant people, Abraham and Sarah. They are in Egypt because of famine. They end up being kept by Pharaoh until God brings down plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt until Pharaoh finally relents and forces them out of the land and back into the promised land of Canaan. This is a story that is just popping up over and over, both forward and backwards in time. These ripples move forward all the way to the person of Christ, who is a new Moses leading a new people out of a far worse and greater slavery into a far greater and final redemption. For what it's worth, the interconnectedness and hugeness of this story of how the Bible fits together and we just see things over centuries and continents and uh, over multiple authors, the, the way that this thing fits together so wonderfully, so beautifully, is frankly one of the things that kept me a Christian about a decade ago. Uh, maybe a little bit longer than that. But not only was I convinced that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead and he is alive, therefore he demands and deserves my worship, but this thing, this Bible is alive. It is living and active. And it is so wonderfully put together that no human could ever have dreamed it. This is a divine author who shows us and wants to show us this story of redemption over and over again building and growing dynamically in our own lives. One other brief aside is a book recommendation that has helped me over the past many months uh, to see some of these themes, both backwards in time and forward in time. There's a book called Echoes of Exodus by Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson. It's like 15 bucks on Amazon. It would be well worth it to invest those $15. And there's even like some study questions at the end of the chapter that can make, this, uh, make the book of Exodus like a, a devotional exercise for you. But just fair warning, there's another book with a green cover on Amazon called Echoes of Exodus. Don't get that one. Get this one, the white cover by Roberts and Wilson. Okay, uh, if the story is the grand, sweeping, rippling event of 
God's salvation of his covenant people, then how do we read it? How do we understand it? Secondly, understanding Exodus. Lord, Lord willing, one thing that we'll learn to do together over the next many months is learn how to better read the Bible. Specifically, how to read Old Testament narrative, the stories of the Old Testament. One voice that has helped me most, uh, not only in the past many years in understanding the Bible and preaching the Bible, but specifically in this book of Exodus is, is a guy named Dave Helm. You might recognize the name David Helm if you've got the white big picture story Bible that many of us read to our kids. Uh, seriously, if you just want to learn how to read the Bible, just sit down for like 30 minutes and just read that. And that will teach you how to read the Bible. It's great. But Dave says that there are two common ways that you will hear Exodus interpreted and or preached. And the first way that we will commonly read it or preach it is by moralizing the book of Exodus. So maybe you get to a verse like Exodus 3.3, where Moses is out in the wilderness, and we read that Moses turns aside and sees God, and then God calls to him from the burning bush. And then the preacher then begins to sermonize that, uh, listen, I know people, you're all busy, but until you will actually take some time to turn to God, then until you do that, he will not call to you. So make him a priority in your life, just like Moses did. Or we can get to like Exodus 18. In uh, this, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and we can make a, a five-week sermon series on, on leadership lessons from Jethro or something like that. Or not maybe perhaps moralizing the book of Exodus, but universalizing it. That is that whatever happens in the universe of Exodus must also be true in my universe. So Exodus 2 becomes a three-week series on parenting preschoolers, where like Moses' mother, who saw that Moses was a fine child, you, parents, need to recognize your child's inherent value, your child's inherent beauty. Moses was special because he was valued by his parents. He was reared by good parents who were just not afraid to let him go down the river. And even uh, Moses flourished because he had older siblings who were given responsibility in the life of of the family or something like that. Or from Exodus 2, where Moses is put in the water, a pastor might go on to say that God will watch over us just as he watched over Moses uh, wherever we might find ourselves adrift on the dangerous waters of life or something like that. So it was with Moses, so it will be with you, not recognizing that Moses is the one of the many thousands of babies that survived, right? Exodus 25 through 40, building of the tabernacle. This can become guidelines for a building campaign of how to build buildings for our churches or something like that. We make ourselves, when we, this is, this is natural for us to do. This is what we want to do because we intuitively think of ourselves individually and perhaps our, as churches as like the gravitational force, the center of the universe. And so we are trying to pull and grab anything that we can find in the Bible that might be useful for my life because I am the center of the universe. This is, the story of the universe is actually a story of me. And so I can grab a helpful bit of Jethro's leadership lessons and apply them to my life in that way. But really when we're doing this, the Bible becomes no more different than like Aesop's fables or any other kind of story with a moral. Really no different than any Pixar movie. 
And the consequences of reading and preaching the Bible in this way are just disastrous. Christianity, rather than being grounded in what God has done in history, becomes what Dave Helm calls an existential manna from on high that feeds an inner felt spirituality. So he's saying that we use the Bible to feel like spiritual people, to make us better parents who value our children and aren't afraid to let them go, or to delegate authority, or to build better buildings or something like that. To make, we use the Bible to make us feel existentially uh, like spiritual people, but this is removed from us being Christians and this book being a Christ-centered Bible. As Clint showed us last week, Moses and the rest of the prophets find all of their culmination and fulfillment in the person and in the work of Christ. The way that we should read this book and the way that we will preach through Exodus is as Christians. That is, Lord willing, these sermons will make no sense apart from the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These will not be Jewish sermons. These will not be moral, morality sermons. They will be Christian sermons. Exodus is about the glories of Christ and the redemption of a people. But we're not going to just try to force fit Jesus, like into the, like grab him off the flannel graph and like shove him into the book of Exodus. We're not going to like take every fifth letter of every fifth word and then it miraculously spells Jesus, the Christ of Albuquerque or something like that. I'm going to try to force fit it. When the apostles grab hold of the book of Exodus or the story of Exodus, what are they grabbing it for? When Peter or Paul start talking about Exodus, what are they doing? Why are they mentioning these things in this letter. We begin, we'll begin to see over the next many months that these very Jewish apostles intend to show us that God's people are saved for the glory of God, directed in the face and in the person of Jesus. The Exodus story is and always was about Jesus. It was always meant to prepare and set the stage for the crashing waves of redemption through the work of Christ. So we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to get to, even in chapter one tonight, which I have given myself very little time to do. So let's turn there now. Exodus 1, second book of the Bible, where we'll now see the need for an Exodus. So what isn't clear in most of our English translations is that the first word of the book of Exodus is actually the word and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. That is, it picks up right where Genesis left off. This is not a separate, unrelated story, but it is part two. It is just continuing on right there. So perhaps if we might get a previously on uh, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, here's a previously on. God had made the world. He had specifically made a land, a garden, to dwell with his people in peace and in love. Humans are intended in this land, in their dwelling with God, to be fruitful. They are intended to multiply. God had delegated his rule on earth for humans to have a job. And the job of humans that God has given them is to work and to keep the land, to keep the earth, to fill it with God's glory. But that, as we know, lasts a page. It lasts two chapters. As humanity rejects God's rule over their lives, they reject uh, the job that God has given them as the earthly middle managers. 
They don't want middle management. Humanity wants to be CEO, wants to be the king. So there is a separation from humanity and God until God calls a new Adam, a guy named Abraham. And he calls him into a renewed covenant with himself that Adam had broken. Abraham receives new promises from God in which God will indeed fill the earth with his glory through this man. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, which we see here listed in Exodus 1. And Jacob's sons in the book of Genesis, they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. God remains with Joseph in his Egyptian slavery and uses Joseph to bless the nations. You might even say bless the entire world. Joseph's, Joseph prepares Egypt for a great famine, and then many years later, Jacob's sons, they come to Egypt looking for food to receive help and blessing from Egypt, and what they don't realize or recognize is that they are receiving blessing and help from their thought-to-be-dead brother Joseph. The story of Genesis might be summed up in Genesis 50, chapter 20, where Joseph tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Genesis is the story about human evil that God works against and that God works through to actually bring blessing. And this is the story that picks right back up in Exodus 1, where these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. The number 70 actually and symbolically representing the 70 nations that were present at the Tower of Babel. The entire world will indeed be blessed through this family. But then the river of time moves on. And we kind of fast forward a little bit. And then we read in verse 6 that Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But we find out that the blessing of God will continue on this family. They continue to grow in number as God told Abraham that they would. And then listen for Genesis 1 language in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They were fruitful. They were multiplying. The land, or its interchangeable word in verse 7, the earth was filled with the glory of God, was filled, was being more and more filled with his blessing through this family. Blessed by God, God's people are fulfilling the role and work that God had given to Adam. But then just as the very good setting of Genesis only lasts two chapters, the very good setting of Exodus lasts half of a chapter. And verses 8 through 12 then set the stage for the rest of Exodus. There's a new king, a new pharaoh who comes to power who doesn't know or chooses to ignore the way that Joseph and his God saved Egypt. And if he doesn't know Joseph, then he doesn't know the promises that this God made to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, that God would bless those who bless this family and curse those who curse this family. This is a story that began in Genesis 3 when God promised that there would be an ongoing conflict, this like ongoing war throughout the rest of the Bible between the seed of the woman, Eve, her offspring, the offspring of the promise, and the seed of the serpent, the offspring 
who show themselves to be against the promises of God. There's conflict between the seed of the serpent and the woman throughout Genesis, and it continues on in the first chapter of Exodus. So this serpent-like Pharaoh sees the people of promise receiving blessing from God, and so he seeks to stop it. He seeks to oppress them. He seeks to destroy them. He orders all of the male children of Israel to be killed. But then chapter 1 sets the stage in two ways now for the rest of the book. From the beginning of chapter 1 of Exodus, we're going to see that this isn't a story of Pharaoh versus Moses, but a story of Pharaoh versus God, of the dark and evil forces of the world against the good and the just and the glorious and the loving God of the world, the world below versus the world above, the gods below versus the God above. Who is more powerful? Who will be victorious. This is the stage that's being set. And in chapter one, we see that despite Pharaoh and the world's best efforts to stop the will of God, it's like building a sandcastle or like a small sand wall to stop a tsunami. The more they were oppressed, the people of Israel multiplied. The more they're being ordered to be killed, the more they're multiplying. The most powerful kingdoms of the world are powerless to stop the purposes of God. But that isn't to say that there aren't very real consequences of evil. For over 400 years, Israel is enslaved. Israel is oppressed. In entire generations, live and die, and then 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 live and die under the evil of Pharaoh. They had to have been wondering, what about the promises that the God of Abraham made? Like, is he still there? Is he real? Is he powerful at all? And so while we must be careful not to moralize or universalize this story, it's no accident that the Exodus story can be be perhaps more real, more meaningful to different cultures who experience different levels of oppression. For the typical upper-middle-class white American, the world is pretty good. There's certainly difficulty. I felt really bad for two of my kids who were up in the middle of the night last night, really sick. None of them are here. Like, that was bad. They certainly struggled. I felt really terrible for them. And while there's certainly wickedness out there on the news, the struggle to survive the struggle to be heard, the struggle to be recognized as significant is not a terribly felt reality for many of us in this room. For black American slaves, this story obviously became the framework for their very existence. For centuries of generations living and dying under oppression and slavery, but and yet believing in a God who is there. A God who will not remain silent forever. A God who one day will act, but who in his wisdom is choosing not to act today or choosing not to act this century. And the Exodus story remains a much more dominant story and framework for present-day black Americans and other Christians in the world who are minority cultures or who feel disempowered, who feel ignored, 
perhaps more so than it does for many white Americans. Many of us perhaps have much to learn and to experience and to empathize with as we enter into the world of Exodus. And yet, that is not to say that there is not real suffering amongst us in this room. Some of us more than others, but for, I think for all of us, at some time in our life, perhaps more frequently than for others, we are tempted to ask, are you even there? God, are you real? Are you capable of keeping your promises? Will you allow suffering and injustice to go on for decades, for centuries, for millennia? Will you remain silent? We've got many, many more chapters to answer those questions. The answer is yes. He will act. He will speak. But perhaps it's not quite best to just go full in and give a a thoroughly, uh, theologically complete answer to those questions because those those answers aren't given in chapter one. Perhaps it's good for us for a week or for a year even for us to take time to enter into the world of lament, to ask, how long, O Lord? When will you act? To ask him to act and to expect him to act. But to quote the 1950s African-American novelist and playwright James Baldwin, God never seems to come when you want him, but when he gets there, he is always right on time. God will not remain silent forever. The story of the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the promise will continue, and it will continue, and it will continue. It will make its ripples through time, repeating itself through scripture until it crashes on the shores thousands of years later of another serpent-like king. This one named Herod, trying one last time to kill the sons of promise, of God's true son, then escaping this serpent-like king, not from Egypt, but to it. But the efforts of Pharaoh and Herod are sandcastles to the tsunami of God's promises, of his power, of his action to redeem a people. And yet, this story of wickedness is a story that unfortunately continues today. Can, can I be so bold to suggest that the spirit of the serpent, the, the spirit of Pharaoh and Herod live on today in the offices of Planned Parenthood. Undoubtedly, it's different in many ways. These biblical women and babies were forced against their will into death. Today's women are often victims of violence, often victims of even economic oppression and difficulty, and they feel as if they have no other options But the spirit of Pharaoh lives on today clearly and emphatically. That what makes a child valuable is not his or her existence, his or her inherent value or dignity as a human being created by God, but today and here in Exodus 1, what makes a child valuable is his or her usefulness to the larger culture. And yet, even in the midst of great wickedness in this Exodus 1 story, there is faith. These Hebrew midwives fear God. 
They are forerunners, perhaps, to Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5, who obey civil authorities as, as, as clearly and as uh, joyfully as possible until it causes disobedience. And then when it comes down to it, perhaps these Hebrew midwives would agree with Peter that we must obey God rather than men. And isn't it incredible that Moses thought it noteworthy to include the names of these women? Shifra and Pua. The name of Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the world, is lost to history. He's insignificant. But these women of faith, Shifra and Pua, when I tell my kids, when we were, or I told them this week when we were reading this story, remember these names. Remember Shifra and Pua. You will meet them one day. They will be exalted for their faith, uh, and you can ask them someday about what it was like to trust in the faithful promises of God, even amidst horrible suffering, horrible oppression. It is every day, seemingly anonymous and forgotten women and men who will trust in God, who will trust that no life is not knitted together by the very hand of God and therefore must not be destroyed. This extremely countercultural understanding of life uh, is countercultural. But I mostly agree with one Christian philosopher who says, I say that in a hundred years, if Christians are identified as people who do not kill their children or the elderly, we will have done well. We will have done well to value human life in its earliest and in its latest stages. So this chapter sets up the rest of Exodus to show that it is a story of Pharaoh who represents all of the wickedness and injustice of the world against God. The kingdom of the world against the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of wickedness and evil against the kingdom of blessing and of good. And the second way this chapter sets up the rest of the book is we're, seen, we're shown here by the very language of chapter 1 that appears in the very last chapter of chapter 40. It's a great Bible study method. If you're beginning a new uh, study of a new book of the Bible, read the first chapter of the book and then read the last chapter of the book. See if you see any repeated phrases or themes or words. This is a, this is a likely indicator of what this book is about. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, we read of God's people, we read of slavery, we read of bondage, we we read of them building cities for a pagan king. Dave Helm points out that in chapter 40, those who begin in slavery are now in service to the king of kings. Those who begin in bondage are now bonded to Yahweh, to God. Those who began by building cities for Pharaoh have now built the tabernacle for the living God. This is incredible stuff. The word for hard service in verse 14 of chapter one is identical to chapter three, verse 12, where God tells Moses, there you will serve me. There you will not, you will, you were, your people are working in hard service to this oppressive and wicked king. But one day I will bring you out in freedom to work in hard but free and in joyful service to me. God, for his own glory, will redeem a people for his own self, where once they were working in service to Pharaoh, they will now live and worship in service to the living God. But how does all of this happen? This is a book of 
freedom, of deliverance, of as we've thought through throughout the beginning, of, throughout most of the course of this service, is a story about sonship, about belonging to God as Father. This is what this book is about, but how does it get there? How does a people move from slavery to sonship? Well, we've got 39 more chapters to answer that. I hope tonight was merely a wedding of your appetite. Here's a good thing for you to do. As we say, as we begin any book through, the, through which we're preaching, begin reading this. Like, if you can, over the next many months, just read this four or five or a dozen or two dozen times, it will be much more helpful for you. You will understand and, Lord willing, be transformed more and more uh, by just the amount of consumption. Uh, we're also going to introduce and or reintroduce a song that many of you know or remember uh, after we take of the supper tonight, a song called Come and Dine. And this is an invitation to us as it is an invitation in this book to come and dine. This, we will not understand what we do here every week unless we understand what's coming in the Passover meal. It's I'm hopeful, I don't know, a month or two from now, uh, when we get to that, what's going on, that, that, that what we do weekly actually comes alive in a more tangible and real way. So we're going to begin preparing us for that in a new or new-ish song to some of you here as an invitation from God to be satisfied in Him. I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, this is a story of slavery and deliverance. It's a story of sin and salvation. It's a story of Pharaoh and of God. It's a story of Moses and the law. It's a story of you and me. Most of all, it's a story of Jesus. This is a story of Jesus, and I'm hopeful that all of us get more and more wrapped up into a story that is bigger than our own. That we're actually, our eyes are lifted to think that, no, I'm actually not the main character of this universe. And that we can together ride this wave of redemption and deliverance together all the way into glory. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father, we know that we can call you Father because you have made us your sons and daughters through Christ. You have brought us out of the slavery of our sin and you are now moving us to glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to know you not as we think that you are, as we want you to be, but we pray that you would help us to know you as you have revealed yourself to be. Help us to worship you as you want us to. Help us to obey you as you empower us to. Help us to keep moving. Keep moving in obedience and, and in love and in contentment and in your presence. Lord Jesus, we pray that, we would, that you would make much of yourself in the coming months as the pillar of fire which leads us, as the rock which provides life for us. You are our deliverer. And it is you that we follow. Lead us now, we pray. In your name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.